We read scripture this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3. We read the chapter taking as our text, verse 7. We hear the inspired, infallible word of God. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. Whose adorning let it not be that outward adorning or plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers be not hindered. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips, that they speak no guile. Let them eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you, if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, 
but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. We read God's word that far. May God bless it to our hearts. Verse 7 is our text for this morning. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've noted proceeding through the epistle, Peter is writing to Christians who are seeking to maintain their life in obedience to God's precepts. And so the apostle here is directing the saints to live Christian lives in obedience to the Holy Spirit. In the first chapter, he expressed the privilege of the grace that God has shown us. The marvelous nature of that grace and the privilege of living in the enjoyment of it. In chapter 2, he admonished the saints as pilgrims, as strangers, to live as God's children in the midst of the world. How do we do that? He expounds on that and shows in chapter 3 by submitting to God's authority. Nothing shows the power of the gospel more in the lives of God's children than those children of God now in thankfulness, obeying God and submitting to Him in every area of life. That obedience reflects the power of the gospel and the light of the Spirit as it shines within you. And that obedience, that submission is necessary in all things. Peter doesn't leave it in the abstract and he addresses that as we've noted. He applies it first to the sphere of government, then he applies it to the sphere of the workplace, and now in chapter 3, to the realm of marriage. Wives are to submit to God by submitting to their husbands. And that loving submission allows them then to stand before God in the confidence of their salvation. Their submission is going to be seen by the world, by even an ungodly spouse, And God will use that to bring glory and honor to himself. Now he addresses the calling to husbands. And we look at that this morning. Husbands, live your lives under the principle of subjection to God. And live your life in such a way then that you display the power of the gospel in how you deal with your wife. That you bring glory to God in the manner in which you treat the wife that God has given you. Dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Give honor to her. So we have now the more positive aspect of that which was set forth in the first six verses. In the first six verses, the husband was set there as one who was potentially ungodly. One who did not show that compassion, that love, that honor. And now he says, believers... Don't live as though you're an unbeliever. Rather, live out of that principle of life that lives within you. And your children must see that you cherish your wife as the most valued and precious gift that God has given you. And so we look this morning at the duty of husbands, noting, first of all, what a godly husband is according to the context here. Secondly, the twofold duty that is placed upon that husband. And finally, the powerful incentive that is given here. 
God is speaking to Christian husbands. And he's addressing those who possess the power of God's grace. That grace has been displayed in the first two chapters. He's laid out the wonder of who we are by God's grace. These men have been begotten again unto a living hope by Jesus Christ. They are men who possess an inheritance that's incorruptible, that fadeth not away. These are men whose faith is strengthened through manifold trials and temptations. These are men who love the unseen Christ. They can't see Him, but they love Him. And they're rejoicing in the joy of their salvation. Everything that Peter is saying here about husbands is predicated by everything that he's laid out concerning who the Christian is and the hope of the child of God. Peter is speaking to you and to me as those who confess the name of Christ, not just with our mouths, but from the heart. We know who we are by the wonder of God's grace. We're sinners who know the power of the gospel in our lives. Sinners who have been plucked by eternal election have been given to know the power of regeneration, a new heart, who confess that we are truly a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, and who desire now to show forth the praise of God in our lives. That's who we are. Now what that impresses upon us, beloved, is this truth. The only possibility of living the Christian life And specifically now, being a godly husband is knowing in your heart the love and the joy that is in Jesus Christ and knowing the power of God's grace. Knowing that I'm a sinner, I don't deserve anything but everlasting damnation and hell. But God in His goodness has pledged His love to me and has given me to know forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ alone. The marriage relationship is based on grace. And it's based on the knowledge of that grace in each individual spouse. As the wife knows the wonder of God's goodness toward her and the fact that she is what she is only by grace, she lives then in submission to her husband for God's sake. And the husband now, knowing the power of God's grace in his life, loves his wife for God's sake. The marriage relationship is based upon that marvelous grace of God. It's based on the power of God by which He preserves His church and keeps her. And He will make that church perfect by His blood. We confess that we are nothing of ourselves but sinners. And that salvation is all of grace. And so our marriages then are based on that grace. If we were to define marriage, the definition would go like this. Two sinners, knowing the power of God's grace in their hearts, now bound for life, and showing daily evidence of that grace to one another. The grace that they've tasted from God. That grace alone allows the husband, the wife, to forbear, to forgive, It allows the husband, the wife, to submit, to love. It allows them to overlook all of the annoying traits 
to forgive the sins, the weaknesses that are going to be evident in marriage as two sinners come together. The power of that grace is such that the apostle later says in verse 8 of chapter 4, And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Have fervent love toward yourselves. Because what's the power of that love? It covers a multitude of sins. It works in you the grace by which you forgive and go forward, knowing yourself covered by Christ and His atoning work. It's the Spirit by which we confess. I am chief sinner. It's so easy for us to say that. So challenging and difficult to live it. Do you know, do I know, that in my relationships, I am the biggest problem. I am the chief sinner. So easy it is to point the finger, come up with a laundry list over against the other. But God works grace in our hearts by which we acknowledge the wonder. I am what I am only by His grace. Now that emphasis on forbearing, forgiving in marriage is at the very heart and center of the Christian's calling. It doesn't matter if we're single, it doesn't matter if we're married, it doesn't matter if we're young or old. Jesus commands us to walk in love and in forgiveness toward one another. We're even called in Luke 6, 35, love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest. If that's the general rule that applies to all Christians, how much more in our homes, in our families, in our marriages? Marriage is the opportunity to show the power of that grace to which God has called us. And in marriage we find then that God's covenant keeping and God's faithfulness are again and again occasion for us to stand in awe and to be thankful. Now that grace is a power within us. It's important for us to understand that grace is a power. It's a power to forgive. It's a power that moves within us to work sanctification and to work holiness. It's not only the power to forgive when we've been sinned against, it's the power to change. It's the power to say no to sin and to say yes to the things that are good. Of ourselves, we would never be able to overcome sin. But God's grace within us is that power that enables us to do battle against the devil and to overcome sin in our lives. That was the confession of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10. I am what I am by the grace of God. Now what was Paul? Paul was a changed man. And what was the occasion? What was it that he bases then that change upon? The power of God's grace in him. Paul didn't run around using his past as an excuse of how he would continue to perhaps treat others in an ungodly way. God's grace as a power in the Apostle Paul transformed him and changed him so that instead of a murderer, he was now a preacher of the gospel. God's grace takes hold of individuals, transforms them so that they are able to live godly in marriage. It's the power by which 
God's church and God's saints live in the midst of this world as God's representatives. And their conversation, their conduct is seen. And the explanation only can be, this is the wonder of God. God's grace is evident in that one. Look at how that one interacts with his or her spouse. Look at how that one conducts himself in the workplace. It's witnessed even by the world, and they stand in awe. That grace of God enables us to change in marriage. It enables us to work patiently toward change in one another. Now this word of God comes to those in whose hearts God has worked true gratitude. And it gives them the desire to obey, the desire to do His will. God speaks to us who love God, who know the wonder of His goodness and mercy toward us. And He works in us the longing to love Him and to obey Him in all of our life. In particular now, in our marriages. The power by which the Christian husband obeys this word of God is the power of the Holy Spirit alone. The Holy Spirit working within him grace and causing him now to do something that otherwise he never would be capable of doing. Marriage requires of you and of me that which we could never do. We would never be able faithfully to conduct ourselves. The Christian life requires of us far more than any of us are capable of performing. Grace is the explanation. The power of Jehovah God by His Spirit in the heart and life of His children. Giving them the power to do that which far exceeds their expectation. And so, beloved, this Word of God comes to us as husbands who love God, who care about God, who desire to see God's name glorified in our lives. And this Word of God comes to us. This is how God is glorified in your life. Dwell with your wife. Love her. Cherish her. Honor her. For God's sake. This word comes to those who love God and want to see God glorified. And God promises His strength. He promises His Spirit and His grace to those who seek Him and desire to give Him glory. Now, this word of God comes to all of us, not just to husbands. It's a broad application, and the apostle especially is going to make that clear in the next verse. Finally, be all of one of mine, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Young men, This is the goal that you must attain should God give you a wife. You love God and your desire now is to treat that woman in a manner that gives God glory. Your model is not just simply those around you. It's not your father. It's not other friends. You need to look to God and you pray, what does God expect me to do as a husband? And you need to know that so that you can help your married friends know what God expects of them toward their wives. Even so that you can encourage your father in regard to his dealings with your mother. It's important that you not detract your married friends from their God-given calling. And you need to help them then. 
Help them dwell with their wives. If they're constantly gone, they're constantly hanging with you instead of being with their wives, you remind them of what their obligation, their calling is. As much as you enjoy their presence, they need to be loving their wives and dwelling with their wives as God calls them. And so we help, we assist one another, holding before one another the calling that God provides for His glory. And young women... This is the kind of man that you need to pursue and desire to marry. Don't just look for one who's like your father, one who's strong, who's wealthy, who's good-looking, a hard worker. You need to look for a man who knows the wonder of God's love in his heart, who knows the power of grace, who gives evidence of it. He sins, but he says he's sorry. He knows the power of that grace and desires to stand for God and for his glory. And you see evidence of that. One who does not know God and one who does not display grace in his life is never going to truly love you for God's sake. One who doesn't treat his sisters or his mothers with honor and respect is not going to treat you with honor, with respect. You look for a young man who gives evidence of the power of God's grace in his heart, who respects you, who loves you, who seeks to treat you as God demands of him. And as a congregation of Jesus Christ, we grow on our understanding of what our calling is before God. And we seek to encourage one another that our light might shine in the midst of the communities in which we find ourselves. That God might be glorified in our submission to Him in the realm of marriage. The man of God who stands before God and desires to walk with God is one who realizes the need for God's grace. He confesses his complete dependence upon God. And he shows that. How do you show that? By prayer. By devotion to the Word of God. By being in the Word. By living in a manner that reflects your devotional life. That you know who you are. And you know where your strength comes from. And you know your need for God's grace and for His strength. You know how weak you are. How in a moment you could fall and cause untold grief and sorrow to your spouse and your family. And that your only strength is in God and in His Word. So easy it is to take God for granted. We're so busy. So easy to take God's Word for granted. And then God wakes us up sometimes. He shows us our sin. He chastises us as a result of that sin. And He reminds us, don't take your wife for granted. Don't take the word of God for granted. So easy it is to require of our wives more than is justified before God. To abuse the role that God gives us as husbands. As we stand before God in His word, there's only one response. And that's repentance, true sorrow, and confessing that my strength is in God alone. And again, beloved, being brought to our knees to confess this. I am what I am by the grace of God alone. It's God's grace alone that can preserve and keep me. And I am entirely dependent upon that grace day by day. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And I need to walk in thankfulness for that grace. And I know that grace alone is the power to forgive and to work sanctification in my life. 
We can't love and we can't dwell with our wives of ourselves. God alone not only gives the gift of a wife in marriage, but he also works the grace by which we are equipped to live then in our marriages for the glory of God. And that grace is the power to forgive. That grace is the grace that teaches us to stop saying those foolish, hurtful things. It's the grace that works in us the power by which we quit doing those things that would cause sorrow and grief to our spouse. We don't just keep doing them and say sorry. Grace is the power by which we turn. We repent. We turn away from that way of sin and we seek to do what's right before God. When we're living in a manner that reflects that grace, we're not giving ultimatums. We're forgiving and we're forgetting and we're going forward. Those not living in love, those not living out of that grace are busy with ultimatums. If you don't do this, then this. Threats, warnings. That's not grace. For if a giving grace is evident in change, in humility, in seeking by, the God, by God's strength to be pleasing to Him and to walk humbly before His face. God sets before us as husbands a twofold duty. First of all, dwell with them according to knowledge. And the incentive, as unto the weaker vessel. Now, dwelling expresses a unique aspect here that pertains to marriage. The only time this word is used in the New Testament is in the context of housing with. God dwelling with us is the ultimate reality. That God lives with us. And so intimately does so in that He lives in us by His Spirit. He sent Emmanuel, God with man, for us. And now he dwells within us. He houses with us. And God is said to dwell with his people so intimately that nothing can break us from that bond. We belong to him. And that's our hope. That's our comfort. I'm not my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And the power of that love of God is such, nothing can break it. Not even death. As husband and wife, God brings us into an earthly reflection of that intimacy. We live in the most intimate bond that exists on earth. And the fruit of our living with God is that we're able to live with one another. Our living with one another flows out of the wonder of that life with God. And that's how our marriages then are earthly reflections of God's marriage to us. We live together by communicating with one another. We live together in spiritual unity and peace. We talk, we communicate. Now most practically this means, very basically, we spend time with each other. We're home together with one another. It's so easy as young couples to get married and then hardly see each other all week. We're busy with our own work, our own jobs, our separate life, and still hanging with our friends. And so, even though we're sleeping in the same house, in the same bed, we're pretty much living yet separate lives. God calls us, no, 
You now are married. You are now to dwell with one another. Live with the one with whom you've been united. And live together every single day in that joyful union. Yes, you need to work to provide for the needs of your family, but you can't put a price tag on dwelling with your wife. And from that perspective, it's better to live in a small home with a ragged couch on which you sit with your wife than to be off amassing a fortune. Dwell with her. If the husband makes himself so busy that he doesn't have time with his wife, he doesn't even enjoy being at home with her, then the Word of God has to come to you sharply. That's not the expression of God's grace in your life. That's not a godly reflection to those around you. There's something seriously wrong with your attitude and with your marriage. Dwell with your wife. There's a warning even that comes in Proverbs 27, verse 8. As a bird that wandereth from her nest, so is a man that wandereth from his place. If a bird laid her eggs and then she wanders from her nest, that would be the epitome of foolishness. She leaves those eggs now to get cold and the chicks to die. So is the man then, a foolish man who wanders away from his place. Dwell with your wife. And in order to dwell with her, you need knowledge. The knowledge that you need is this. Your wife is a precious gift from God. God has entrusted her to you as a helper suited for you. You can't go forward in life now alone. You need her and you need the strength that she provides. Now you're not going to learn that true knowledge of a woman from the world's wisdom. Sitting in front of the television night after night is not going to strengthen you in the knowledge that you need concerning your wife. You don't learn what a woman is from watching pornography. If you've learned your knowledge about women from the world, then you're not going to be walking in a manner that reflects the power of God's grace. And your wife is going to suffer. And God's name is not going to be glorified. The witness is not going to be powerful and evident of your walk with Him. You need to take your knowledge from what the Bible teaches about women and about your wife. And you need to know that she is a precious possession from God. As a child of God, she's been redeemed by the blood of God, Jesus Christ, chosen by God from eternity. And she's not your possession, she's God's. And now God deemed her so precious that He's the blood of his only begotten son for her. And now he entrusts her to you. Dwell with her. Love her. Honor her. Cherish her. Think twice before you reach out your hand to strike the object of God's love and compassion. How dare you treat God's precious possession as one who's without value, one who's not worth spending time with, one who's not worth talking to. God's precious possessions need to be treated with honor, with dignity, with respect. And as godly husbands then, we immerse ourselves with Christ. How is it that Christ loves His church? That's the calling that is mine. We need the holy passion that Paul speaks of in Philippians 3 verse 10. That I might know Him 
and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. To know Jesus Christ and to know the power of salvation that's found in Him. And knowing Christ, to live and to love as Christ loves. Beloved, again, to be a man of the Word. And how is it that I grow in my understanding of Christ? Specifically, some passages as are laid out in the outline. Colossians 2, especially after verse 15, where Christ and the church are beautifully explained. Helps us understand. This is what Christ did for His church. And this is how you are to conduct yourself now as one who seeks to be Christ-like. Proverbs 8 talks about Wisdom, and wisdom there is personified as Christ. This is how you are to conduct yourself. Hebrews 1 talks about Christ being the express image of God, extolling Him, and giving unto us again to stand in awe of the wonder of His goodness, His faithfulness, and to live out of that life that's in Christ. Make the Song of Solomon your study. Spend time with Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, which speaks of Christ, His love for His church, and then the reflection of that love in marriage. Pray that God would more and more make known Christ to you. That you might know the wonder of who you are in Jesus Christ what Christ has done for you. And that as you walk with Him, and as you seek to walk and to live in obedience to Christ, you might love your wife for Christ's sake. Now the text speaks of an aspect of that knowledge. She's a precious vessel. That's what our text calls her. Now that's not demeaning. The Bible calls husbands and wives vessels. In Romans 9, we all are vessels by God's grace. All mankind are referred to as vessels. Some vessels fitted for destruction, others vessels fit for mercy. And the wonder of the vessels fit for mercy is that they were chosen as such from before eternity. So that Romans 9 directs us to the wonder of election. The word vessel points to the fact that God has created all men as those fitted in fashion by His hand for a specific purpose that He has. And He uses there the illustration of the potter. The potter takes a piece of clay and then He fashions that clay into the specific vessel that He desires. So God's work. So that God, from eternity and in time, fashions each of His children into the precious vessels that He ordains them to be for His glory and for His honor. Each one is fragile. They are what they are only by God's grace. Their value is not found in themselves, but in their Maker and in His love for them. Now the point of the Spirit here is that we're both vessels. Men are weak vessels. Women are vessels that are weak. But women are the weaker vessel. Now that doesn't refer to mental, spiritual, moral even physical weakness. It refers especially to her created identity and the place that she occupies by virtue not only of creation, but then also the fall. God made the woman to be under her husband. She was created to be vulnerable. 
The woman wants to be loved. The woman desires and has that need for love. And because of that, she's vulnerable then to be abused. Now, unbelieving women want nothing to do with any kind of distinction between the man and the woman. Whereas God's word is clear. God created man first and then the woman. And God himself determined that though they are equal spiritually, there would be an inequality with regard then to their position. The wicked men, the wicked husband, turns that into tyranny. He lords over his wife and he preys on her. And he uses that vulnerability to abuse her and to seek his own will in his own way, using threats using all kinds of attempts to keep her under his control and threatening her constantly with that love that she so desperately wants, to feel loved, to feel needed. The Christian husband must live differently. He dwells with his wife. And he loves his wife. He doesn't give his wife occasion to doubt or question that love. He doesn't abuse his wife and use her need to be loved as an occasion to seek his own will, his own way. He treats his wife not as he conceives of her, but as he knows her to be of God. And so Christian husbands cherish, love, care for their wives with sensitivity in the position that God has given to them. Don't exploit her. Don't prey on her. Treat her with respect. Lead her. Protect her. Cherish her. Nurture her for God's sake. And confess this wonder. We are heirs together of the grace of life. This is the position in which God has placed us together. We share this marvelous wonder that we are heirs of a grace that's so marvelous, so wondrous, that it will carry us to eternity and beyond. How are you teaching your sons this truth? How are you modeling this in your families, in your homes? We need to demand that our sons treat their sisters, their mother, with respect. That they see evidence of it in the manner in which we treat our wives for God's sake. But secondly, give honor to your wife. And the motive there, as being heirs together of that grace of life. You're called to give her honor. Now what does that mean? Honor is something that doesn't just come outward. It's something that comes from the heart. It's one of Peter's favorite words by the inspiration of God. Repeatedly, he speaks of honoring God. Honoring and fearing the king. God, because of how great and glorious He is, is worthy of all honor and all glory. Honor is an understanding of the great value of one and treating that one then in accordance with the value that that one occupies. You see the great outstanding value of God. You see His glory, His majesty, and you treat Him then with the respect and the honor that is to be directed toward one who occupies such a high place. You see the outstanding value of your wife as a precious possession of God. You see her as one whom God has redeemed 
so that she's a joint heir with you of the grace of God. That God has given to your wife an inheritance that's incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for her. That she's a daughter of the King of Kings. You're married to a woman who exists for the praise and the glory of God. Her existence is not about you. It's about God. It's about His glory. You're married to royalty in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ has shed His blood for your wife so that she will be His precious possession to all eternity. You as a husband must behave yourself then toward your wife, confessing that honor. And your children again see that in your treatment of your wife. People around you must see evidence of the high place that you give to God and the honor then that's reflected in your treatment of your wife. Again, honor is recognizing the value of. Do you recognize who your wife is? Now we walk by faith in that regard, not by sight in our marriages. We see one another's faults. We see one another's sins. We can become so shook up and so moved with one another's faults and failures. God says, focus on who you are by grace again. You are joint heirs of the grace of God. Christ died. He gave his eternal inheritance for you. And God tells you now what she is worth. Are you listening to God? Don't look at her weaknesses and try to undermine her. Don't try to knock her down because she doesn't meet the criteria or standards you desire of her. Don't knock her down because she's not as knowledgeable as you are. Her worth is not found in what she does or who she is. Her worth is found in who she is by God's grace. And God tells you, she's not just a wife. She's not just a woman. She's not just a homemaker. She's a daughter of the king. And so God, by his grace, opens our eyes to see the precious possession that God has given and that we honor then, for God's sake, as those who are joint heirs of that glorious grace of life. God provides a powerful incentive here in this passage. First of all, the incentive that our marriages are to be a witness concerning his love toward us. This is humbling, beloved. You know how your neighbors live. You hear they're squabbling, especially in the summertime. They're outdoors more. Maybe windows are open. You hear what goes on in the houses. Our houses are so close together often that we hear what's going on next door. And then we see the police car pull up into the driveway to settle domestic disputes. We hear reports that something's going on. They're cheating on one another, perhaps. We hear in the workplace, we hear gossip concerning marriages that are on the rocks, marriages that face divorce. What a contrast to the godly devotion of the one who confesses, I am a pilgrim, I am a stranger. And though my marriage is fraught with sin, with weakness, though I am chief sinner in that marriage, by God's grace, we love one another and we press on for his sake. What a contrast, beloved. Even if you not talk to your neighbors much, you know what their relationship one to another is. And in turn, they pick up on what's going on in your home and in your household. 
They pick up on your relationship to your wife. The men at work may have never met your wife, but they know her. And they know what you think about her. Do you talk about her in a manner that complains? Telling her, telling them about her faults, mocking her in their presence. I've worked with couples whose marriages were almost destroyed because of struggles that they were going on in their marriages. And then one spouse or the other goes to work, confides in a fellow co-worker of the struggles they're having. They find someone that can listen to them, someone that gives them a listening ear. And soon they're on their way to an emotional and intimate relationship with someone without even realizing how subtly the devil just drew them into that relationship. Be careful, beloved. Realize how quickly our talking with others in a manner that demeans our spouse can be used by the devil and others to draw us away from the love of God and away from faithfulness to God. The people with whom you work, those with whom you interact, must know that you believe that you are living with a daughter of the king. They need to know your commitment to your wife. They need to know that you think the world of your wife because of who she is in God's sight. They need to know that your love for your wife and your faithfulness to your wife is for God's sake, first of all. She's a sinner. She's got problems and issues. You're not airing them to the world. You deal with them in private. And for God's sake, you do not and you will not be looking around at other women. You don't give occasion for your wife to question or to doubt your commitment to her. You don't give occasion for your wife for suspicion because of other women perhaps in your lives or with whom you work. You make clear to her and you guard your walk with others so that she knows that she alone is second to God in your life. If you take your instruction, beloved, regarding marriage from the world, you hear very different advice. The world will say, only love her if you're getting loved back. If you're getting happiness in return, then it's worth it. But if not, forsake her. Find someone else. Life is short. The world says, establish the value of your spouse on the basis of what usefulness he or she is for you. And if they're not being very useful for you, find out someone else. Don't base it on who and what she is before God. The world demeans women into being useful merely for sexual attraction and sexual fulfillment. The world and the feminist movement degrades women into being equal with men. God doesn't do that, and neither may you or me. God says, my daughters are daughters for whom I shed the blood of my own son. They are my princesses, and I'm preparing them for a house, an eternal inheritance that I've entrusted them. I'm getting them ready for my own marriage bed. And now for a time I entrust them to you to assist me in that spiritual work. Beloved, is that your attitude toward your wife? If someone asks your wife, what would she tell them concerning the value that you place upon her? Beloved, this is our calling, our duty as husbands before God. This is the responsibility of every man to whom God gives a wife. 
And this is the kind of man that you young women need to seek to marry. Look for a man who loves God, who's willing to submit to God in all things in his life. And demand these qualities of a man before you give your heart to him. Now, beloved, we would despair of ourselves. We look to Christ for strength. We look to him for the grace that we need. And we confess again, I cannot walk in marriage alone. I need God and His grace. And my marriage is dependent upon His grace alone. I don't have what I need to be faithful to my wife. And that's why I made vows before the face of God. Looking to God to help me and to assist me in order that I might be faithful for His sake. Beloved, there's a final incentive here. And that has to do with prayer. Praying together. We know that there are things in our lives that can happen that prevent our ability to have fellowship and communion with God with a clear conscience. And the Bible often talks about how sin interrupts our interaction with God. How we live has everything to do with how we walk with our God. And if we're living in sin, then we're just going to be able to walk before God with our heads hung in shame. And most of the time, we're not going to be trying to walk with God. We're going to try to to walk away from God. We're going to be trying to walk in our own strength. But specifically, how you live with your wife has everything to do with how you walk before God. And specifically, your prayer life. When you're dwelling with your wife sinfully, your prayers are not going to be heard. You're going to have no assurance of those prayers being heard. Now, this warning should strike to the heart of every child of God. It cuts to our heart. I love God. I desire to walk before my God. Prayer is precious to me as a child of God. The child of God never takes prayer lightly. And to know that my prayers are hindered when my relationship to my spouse is not what it ought to be cuts us to the heart. The attitude of the child of God is this. My walk with God And my walk with him in prayer is so precious that whatever would stand in the way of that is not worth it. It must be resolved. And again and again, the Bible directs us to that. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount addresses us. If you have awed against your brother, you go make things right. And then you bring your matter of prayer before God. Psalm 66, verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, The Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. We repent. We cry out for mercy. God will hear the broken, the contrite heart. The spirit that he works, that humility in for Christ's sake. If we're not living with our wives in obedience with God, then we're not going to be praying with our wives either. We need to be honest with ourselves. When was the last time we prayed alone with our wife? Could the two of you just come together and pray together, opening your heart together before God? Go home this morning, sit down together, hold hands and pray from the heart with one another, expressing the joy of the salvation that God has given you that you are joint heirs of this marvelous work of grace. 
And that God calls you now to live together in this holy bond for His witness and for His glory. Would your prayer be sincere or would it be the prayer of a hypocrite? Now again, beloved, if you're abusing your wife, if you're taking her for granted, if you're upset with her, and you're a child of God, you won't be able to pray. The Spirit testifies to our heart. You can't come into God's presence in that state. How can you say you love God when you don't love your neighbor? That's 1 John. Your neighbor with whom you live, whom you see. How can you say that you love God whom you can't see when you're not even walking in love toward the one whom you can see? God says, go be reconciled. Then come to me in prayer and bring your gift. Beloved, we cry out for mercy. We cry out for forgiveness. And we know ourselves to be chief sinners. But this is the wonder of wonders. Jehovah God is pleased to dwell with me. Jehovah God dwells with me. What a wonder of wonders. A holy and righteous God lives within my heart by His Spirit. And He will never forsake me. He will never cast me off. He never walks in anger and wrath toward me. Through the power of the cross, He loves me. And He makes all things work together for good. And He assures me nothing can separate me from that walk, from that dwelling with Him. Beloved, that's our blessed assurance. And that's the confidence with which we go forward. I am loved by God who's taken me into fellowship with Himself and who in turn will give me the grace to dwell in marriage as an earthly reflection of the wonder of His goodness and mercy toward me. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, forgive us. Cause that we might confess our sins before Thee. We know our own unworthiness, our own selfishness and sinfulness. And Lord, work in us the grace to know the marvelous fellowship that is ours in Christ. To know the power of Thy grace that we might show our love to Thee by loving our wives for Thy sake. Amen.